So he told me I have two hours today, so buckle up. Hey, before we, um, before we dive into the word, we, we will be in Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2 today. I think honor uh, is due to Bishop Joe and Pastor Joyce Matera. I, I don't know if you guys understand the magnitude of the gifting on their life and the impact that they have had uh, on my life and on our church, but not only on our church, on churches across the entire globe. And so can we just give it up? for the parents of the house and what God is doing in them and through them. Thank you guys, thank you for the opportunity of being here. Um, another person I wanna give a big shout out to and I really can't see her, I think she's in the back, is my beautiful wife. Christy, are you back there? They're in the nursery, all right. All right, so that's, that's totally fine. So my wife is uh, Christy, we've been married uh, eight years now, I think it's eight. Seven years, eight? Don't you just love that, right? You like forget, so don't tell her I said that. Uh, but we've been married uh, roughly eight years now, and it is eight years, yeah. And uh, we've got two children, Judah Benjamin, who is five years old, and Allie Grace, who is two and a half, and Judah came with us. He was so excited because he gets to go on daddy's work trip. And so um, it's, been, it's been fun, and, and the way you guys have hosted us has just absolutely been awesome. If you're taking notes today, I'm calling this messaging, this message, Flourishing and Rebuilding with Prayer. Flourishing and Rebuilding with Prayer. And speaking of family, have you ever been in a place in your life where you have had such a tough situation that you didn't know what to do? Where everything was coming against you and you were just kind of like frozen in that moment and all you could do was pray? Those, those moments where it's just like, God, I need you to do something. I need you to move. I need you to speak to me. I need you to move in this moment. I believe right now as a nation, we are in that place. I believe right now in the global church, we are in that place. But five years ago, I was also in that place whenever my wife was giving birth to Judah. Uh, we went in, and she had gone into labor. Her water broke, and... Uh, uh, funny story, she decided, and I don't know what she was thinking, she decided to bathe our 50-pound dog whenever I wasn't home, and so she lifted the dog up, put him in the tub, and about an hour after that, her water broke, and so we rushed to the hospital. I guess she was ready to get him out of her belly, which I don't understand, but I have empathy for, right? And uh, so we get to the hospital, and things seem to be going well uh, with the delivery process. And about 12, 14 hours into it, my wife started saying, I'm freezing and something's not right. And so we hit the button, called the nurse in, and she came in, checked her temperature, and it said 97.5, everything's fine. Nurse left and uh, comes back in, and um, I'm just not feeling well. Michael, you got to do something. I was like, all right. So we called the nurse back in, comes back in. This went on about four or five times, and my wife's temperature kept coming back completely normal. But we noticed that Judah's heart rate was elevated in the womb to around 200 to 220 beats per minute. And, and so finally the nurse said, well, let me just call the doctor. The doctor comes in there, takes her temperature, and says, can we get another thermometer? 
And, and so the nurse went and grabbed another thermometer. They put the thermometer in there, and it was reading 104.5 for my wife. And so Dr. Vasso said, we're doing an emergency C-section. And I'm telling you, I have never in my life seen anything like that. The moment that she said that, it was like a SWAT team came into the delivery room. And, and like, I mean, they pushed me out of the way. And I'm sitting over there terrified. Um, and next thing I know, they're prepping her for surgery. And 10 seconds later, wheeling her out. And then the nurse comes up to me and says, here, get dressed. And I'm like, what just happened? What just happened? 20 minutes later, our son Judah was born. But it was in that moment, everything was completely out of my control. And I didn't know what to do except for to stop and just pray. God, I don't know what to do right now. Father, I don't even know what I'm supposed to pray, so I'm just going to pray in the Spirit. I'm just going to trust you. I'm just going to believe because all I want is my wife to be healthy and my son to be healthy and for our family to flourish, to flourish the way that you've called us to, to flourish the way that you've predestined for us to do. There is something about human flourishing that God desires for all of humanity to be able to understand and to comprehend. But something else I've learned about human flourishing since being a parent, I think all the parents will give me a loud amen to this, is it dismantles individualism. Hear me out. The moment Judah was born, and as much as I love him, he thought the whole world revolved around him. He still thinks the whole world revolves around him. See, two misconceptions that are out there is, number one, we think that the world revolves around us, and it doesn't. And number two, we think everything in our world should benefit us. And let me just throw this out there. There's an aspect that God has given us common grace, and things should be used for our joy and for our pleasure. But if it doesn't line up with the mission of the gospel of Jesus advancing the church, of Jesus breathing new life into the church, then there's something that we have to check within us. See, human flourishing with God starts whenever we, we look at our lives and our preferences become secondary to the mission of Jesus Christ. Human flourishing starts whenever we're able to look at our lives and be able to hit time out and we're able to submit to the will of Jesus Christ in our lives. The other is human flourishing happens when our primary pursuit is God's joy and not our happiness. I think a lot of times Christians get happiness and joy mixed up. See, happiness is based upon our circumstances. Joy is based upon the eternal work of the cross of Jesus Christ. Consider it pure joy when you face trials and tribulations. Consider it pure joy. The joy of the Lord. Someone was praying this morning before prayer, which, by the way, I love the way you all pray. It gets me all excited. But the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so here you have Nehemiah, 800 miles, 800 miles away from his home city of Jerusalem, and he's hearing word about what's happening in the world. To kind of set it up, I want to give a little bit of a historical context. And if you're a Bible scholar like Bishop Joe, you'll totally understand this. If not, um, hopefully I'm going to try to catch you up to speed but we know that the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites for roughly 430 years, and Moses went to Pharaoh and told Pharaoh to let my people go. 
And they left Egypt, and what was supposed to be a 42-day journey ended up turning into a 40-year journey, which, which then they crossed over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, but not with Moses, with Joshua. And Joshua led the Israelites into the Promised Land and defeated the Canaanites. Whenever they got there and they defeated the Canaanites and they drove them out, the people started crying out, we want a king, we want a king. And God said, I want to be your king. But the people said, no, we want a king. And so God gave them a king, a man by the name of Saul. Saul, who was big in stature and, and, and I mean, he's got the muscles and he had the, the power and the wealth and all of that. But Saul doubted God. And through a turn of events, his his kingship was then transferred to a young man by the name of David, a shepherd out into the field. But then as we know, David ends up passing away, and he passes his kingdom on to Solomon, his son. And this is the first time that Israel experienced, experienced flourishing and wealth and peace. There was no war during King Solomon's reign. And then after he died, there ended up being this huge family battle that took place. And the whole nation of Israel got into this massive civil war, and it was split into two kingdoms. The first kingdom being the kingdom of Israel, the second kingdom being the kingdom of Judah. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel, they remained in sin, and, and you, this is important for where we're going. They remained in sin, and they would not repent. They would not return to, to Yahweh, to God. They would not Returned to him, they just started focusing on idol worship and pagan worship and sinning. And God allowed in the year 722 BC the Assyrian Empire to come in there and to completely sack and enslave the Israelites. The southern kingdom, they went through a good king and a bad king, a good king and a bad king. We're going to worship Yahweh, we're going to turn to our own ways. We're going to worship Yahweh, we're going to turn to our own ways. And for them, they lasted a little longer until 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came in and they then exiled everyone out of the kingdom of Judah. A few years after that, a hundred or so years after that, the Persians came in and they ended up beating the Babylonians. And so not only was the kingdom of Judah now enslaved to the Babylonians, but they now had a new king, a new emperor that was um, there to lord his lordship over the people. And it was during this period right here that we see Second Chronicles 7.14 come into play where the, the prophet called out, he said, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Notice that word, if my people humble themselves, pray and seek turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Wasn't long after that that Artaxerxes, the Persian king, the Persian ruler, had a boy by the name of Nehemiah come into his court. And God used this young man in a great and powerful way to bring healing to the land. And so Nehemiah takes place simultaneously with Ezra, the prophet Ezra, or the priest Ezra. And so they're both happening at the same time, and there's multiple times where there's crossover that's taking place, which is important to understand as you start to dive into Nehemiah and you get towards the latter part of the book. 
But here Nehemiah is, 800 miles away from his homeland, and we're going to pick up in verse 2. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem is broken, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And so here Nehemiah is, he's getting word that the city, his home city, his homeland, so to speak, has been destroyed and the, the people are in trouble and the walls have been torn down. And what happens to Nehemiah next is extremely important because I believe that this sets the tone for where your church, where Resurrection Church is going to be going over the next 30 days during this Heal the Land prayer and fasting. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Have you ever heard news that's caused you to just start weeping in that moment? Have you ever been so overwhelmed with empathy and compassion that something inside of you just ends up breaking? It's like, God, I don't know what's going on in my heart right now. There's, there's two times more recently in my life that I experienced that. I'm from southeast Texas. I love Cajun food. Don't make fun of me. Has anyone here ever eaten crawfish? A few of you guys, y'all are the holy ones. The rest we're going to be praying for, right? Um, I love crawfish. I grew up in southeast Texas, which is which Orange, Texas, which literally is about a stone's throw away from Louisiana, Texas. Um, it is the, it's not the prettiest place in America. We'll just leave it that way, all right? It's like you don't want to move there, and you definitely don't want to take your wife there on vacation, which I totally did one time. And she was like, why did you live here? And I'm like, honey, the Spirit of God is here, though, right? I know that it's sticky, and you have mosquitoes. Anyways. So I'm up in New York, and I heard about this hurricane or tropical storm Harvey that was approaching the southeast Texas, the Beaumont, Orange, Gulf Coast, and um, I was like, all right, they've lived through tropical storms, they've lived through hurricanes, I'll pray for my friends, whatever. And I don't know if you remember Hurricane Harvey whenever it hit America, but it just kind of stopped over southeast Texas. And it wasn't the winds that were the issue, it was the rain. And it started raining and raining, and raining, and raining, not one day, not two days, not three days, not four days, but for five or so days, it rained nonstop in southeast Texas. And about day three or day four of this going on, um, I'm in a group text with some friends that I grew up with, all in ministry, down in southeast Texas, and my friend at 4 a.m., Byron, texted me, he said, will you guys please pray? We are on the roof of our house right now because the floodwaters have gone so high, and it's me, my grandparents, and my wife, and our nine-month-old baby. And so I wake up at 7 o'clock in the morning, I look at this text message, and grief just settles in. Mourning just settles in. And, and it's one of those that, like, this isn't just something that you see on CNN or Fox News. This is somebody that I know. And later I found out through BuzzFeed, a BuzzFeed article that he was rescued by the, the Cajun Navy, as they call it down there. Google it, uh, just not while I'm preaching. Wait till afterwards. But, like, um, 
but they were finally rescued and they ended up making it to safety and they didn't have cell service. And so it was still several days after that I talked to them. But almost everything that they owned was lost. Another church, the first church I was on staff with down in Southeast Texas, they were in the middle of a building campaign, building their new facility because they had outgrown it. But their old facility was literally destroyed, not by winds, but by floods. And they were the nomadic church for about nine months while they had to rebuild their old facility. This was my hometown. Everything destroyed. A month or two after it hit, I remember going down there and we were just driving around, circling, and just this morning that was there, this morning, morning that had set in. Another, and I believe that this will speak to many people here, another moment for me was whenever the protest started taking place and hearing the outcry on racial injustice that's been happening in America. And one particular Saturday evening, it turned violent in Albany, New York. And I remember waking up the next day and reading the news on Twitter, which I don't know how accurate it was, but I got in my car and I started driving around the city of Albany where the cars were set on fires, where stores had been robbed and looted, and I just drove around the city dumbfounded, broken, because my city that God sent me to, that God planted me to, had been destroyed, had been hurting with a people group who felt so oppressed that this was their reaction to be able to get somebody's attention. Nehemiah, 800 miles away, he starts mourning, and he falls to his knees in fasting and in prayer. There's a compassion and an empathy that's there in Nehemiah. I mean, my God, he was in the king's courts. He probably had a life of luxury, a great bed to lay down on at night. Food was being served to him. But that wasn't the case for Nehemiah. He was essentially saying, God, I know I'm 800 miles away, and it probably seems like I can't do anything right now, but Lord, what is going on? Just mourning and grief was setting over him. Compassion had followed, followed upon him. Oftentimes, I hear the question, and you've probably heard the question, am I my brother's keeper? Right? We see this in Scripture over and over and over. Lord, who is my neighbor? Well, let me tell you a story. We see this over and over and over. Are you your brother's keeper? Yes. The answer is yes. We as believers in Jesus Christ are called to radical compassion and humility and empathy for all of the world. Because the kingdom of heaven has not been fulfilled on this earth, and it is our job, it is our responsibility, it is our mandate and our mission as the church of Jesus Christ to bring heaven down onto this earth, to call upon the fire of God, the glory of God, and the goodness of God through prayer and fasting and repentance. Let me keep going, verse 5. And I said, O oh Lord God of heaven, now this is his prayer, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your ears be open 
to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned against you. What what was his prayer? His prayer was recognizing the authority and the position and the place of God in his life. And then the second led to a place of repentance for himself and for the land, for his family. He had a right view of God and a right view of himself. A right view of the lordship of his heavenly father and a right view of himself that then led to a place of repentance. The more that you elevate yourself, is the, the, um, the more that you end up elevating yourself, the less that you're going to be able to see and enter into empathy and compassion for those who God has called you to reach. Who's in the driver's seat of your life? Who's in the driver's seat of our churches? Is it ourself? Or is it our Heavenly Father? He continues on in verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying... If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to a place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. What is he doing right here? He's remembering the commandments of Moses that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai, and he is reminding God, and it isn't like God needs to be reminded, but oftentimes we need to repeat or we need to rehearse the scripture to ourselves to remind ourselves of who it is that we're actually serving, that we are serving a God who can bring righteousness and justice on this earth, that we are serving a God who will never leave us nor forsake us, that we are serving a God who resurrects all things and restores all things back to himself, Ephesians 1 verse 10, that we are serving a God, it isn't necessarily for for God. He doesn't need to be reminded of himself, but whenever his people start reminding God who he actually is, then they start refreshing and getting this in front of their face, man. Something happens to the heart of mankind. Something happens. And so Nehemiah, he's reminding God, ultimately reminding himself, verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. God, these are your servants. God, this is my friends in Beaumont, Texas, or in Orange, Texas, who are suffering right now with this flood. But Lord, they're also your children. I need you to do something. God, these are your children that are being murdered on the streets. I need you to do something. God, these are your children whom you have called, whom you have placed. God, I need you to do something. Verse 11. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to your prayer of your servant, and let the prayer of your servant who delight to to fear, to fear your name. Again, position of who God is in his life. And give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of man. That's his ask right there. Come on, God, please be attentive. Please, be, please listen to what your servant's crying out to you for. 
And I love how he ends chapter 1, which it wasn't written in chapter 1, chapter 2. I love how he ends this right here. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. A cupbearer. Nobody special. He was a servant to Artaxerxes. A cupbearer. You know, oftentimes we feel like it's the preachers, the pastors, the worship leaders, which, by the way, you guys did a great job today. Thank you. Give it up for them, too. Oftentimes we think it's the prophets and the apostles, but many times God is looking for the servant who works at Starbucks, or he's looking for the teacher who's teaching remote right now. Or he's looking for the person who works in politics or in the government. Or he's looking for the city bus driver or the subway operator. Or he's looking for someone who works on Wall Street. God is looking for ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But it takes a heart posture of repentance, prayer, and fasting for God to be able to use you in an extraordinary way, even though you might consider yourself an uncommon, ordinary person. He's a cupbearer. What does he do? He drinks wine for the king. This is good. I would actually kind of like that job. I'm just throwing it out there like, I'm joking, I'm joking. God wants to use you. And what happens next in his circle of influence is pretty profound. Chapter two, verses one through five. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Verse 2, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. He was afraid. He was afraid because the king was calling, hey, what is going on right here? And then I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, so what are you requesting? What are you requesting? I think that this is interesting because he's an uncommon guy in the presence of the king doing his job like he's supposed to 800 miles away And God presents him with an opportunity, the very thing that he prayed for in chapter 1, verse 11. And then the opportunity is given to him. And with fear and trembling, he starts saying to the king very boldly, why shouldn't I be sad? You've destroyed my city, essentially. The Persians have, and the Babylonians have, and the people before that, we've all been exiled. Why shouldn't I be sad? My people are hurting. The city has been destroyed. So I prayed to the God of heaven, verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's grave, that I may rebuild it. When you all play. I think oftentimes we're looking for the pastors, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers to do the work of the ministry. But in Ephesians chapter 4, 
says that the fivefold is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. God wants to use you, man. God wants to use you in such a powerful way, in such an uncommon way, in your circle of influence, wherever it is that God has placed you. We're crying out, God, we want you to heal the land, and God will heal the land, but he's also saying, where is the church that's going to stand up and be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ to the people that are broken, to the people that are oppressed, to the people that are experiencing apathy in their life? Where is the church that's going to have compassion and empathy, but at the same time is going to be bold and righteous and stand up for holiness? That's going to call out to God, if my people would humble themselves and pray, then I will heal their land. Who does he use to heal the land? He uses you by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. We are living in a time right now when men and women rely too much on their own strength instead of the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. We're trying to build churches in our own strength, and we need to repent and say, God, we can't build your church. Only you can build your church. Just use me as a vessel. Use me as a tool. Use me as somebody who is a nobody who's going to do something extraordinary for the kingdom of God. Not for my glory, but for his glory. I believe that this next chapter of revival or awakening or outbreak or whatever you want to call it that's going to happen not only in America but that's going to happen in the world is going to come through a renewed passion for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit being alive and active in their life and spending time with the Holy Spirit through prayer and through fasting and through repentance and through serving and through giving and through living on mission for the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. Notice that whenever Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, he talks about prayer and he talks about fasting. He doesn't say if you pray and if you fast, but he says when you pray and when you fast, this is how I want you to do it. We are commanded to a life of prayer and fasting that leads to repentance for our own sins. You know, I believe, and I'm, I guarantee you that this is the case. I believe that the leader of any church Bishop Joe and Joyce Matera believe that the lead pastors of any church should be the lead repenters modeling the way for their congregation. And I've heard this man pray. I haven't heard you pray the way that I've heard him pray, but I know that they're crying out for God to move. I've heard them repent for the sins in our land. I've heard them on the threshing floor calling out. Amen, this is... This is your pastors saying, hey, we're going to do this together. I love what John Wesley said. Give me 50 men who are on fire and watch the city come to see them burn. Practical application. What does this mean? Prayer, and fasting, repentance. Number one is to know who your heavenly father is the greater understanding that you have of the character and the nature of God, the smaller you're going to be. Number two is it leads to a place of repentance. We see this in Nehemiah. You also see this in Jonah. But it leads to a place of repentance, of turning our hearts back to our Heavenly Father. 
It leads to a place of prayer and fasting where we get to know who God is. Man, prayer and fasting is not about you losing weight. That might be a byproduct, and you might look in the mirror on day 21 and be like, dang, I look good, but that is a byproduct. It is not about that. It is about you getting to know God, removing something so that God can fulfill you and sustain you whenever you're sitting there and you're craving that chocolate cookie or that ice cream or that glass of wine or whatever it may be so that Jesus can be like, no, I am your sustainer. And the last one is to listen to the voice of God. And hear me out. This is so important. A few weeks ago, my wife and I, we took our kids up to Lake George. If you've never been to Lake George, I highly recommend it. We went to this um, small place called Bolton Landing, probably 2,000 people in the town, if that. We rented out a cabin. Our staff came up there, and we had our little, like, mini vacation with our staff, and it was fun. Rented a boat, and, you know, I went tubing. I thought I died uh, for a moment. I've never been tubing before, and I hit the water, and I was like, oh, shut up, right? Like, like, God, help me, you know? Um, but while I was up there, I was thinking about one particular night, about the presidential election, the chaos in the world, the earthquakes that we're seeing, the however many dozens of named storms that we've had that have come to America or at least formed off of our seas, the injustice that's taking place, and while I'm thinking about all this, my wife, she turns to me and she goes, hey, honey, will you go grab something out of the car? I said, yeah, not a problem. And so I go out into the cabin. I walk out to our car. I grab whatever it was out of the car. And I shut the door. And I just happened to look up. And it was a clear night. And I saw not one or two, but I saw thousands upon thousands upon thousands of stars that my father created. And there was this peace that came over me that regardless of how crazy it is, uh, how insane things get here in America, my God is still good. And he wants a relationship with me. And it was one of those surreal, pivotal moments. And I walked back into the cabin and I sat down and continue doing what we were doing, but man, it has stuck in my head ever since then. And that Heavenly Father wants a relationship with every one of us. He wants to deepen your relationship, and maybe for some of you, he wants to begin a new relationship with you. You know, in Matthew chapter 16, I promise you, I'm landing the plane, I'm closed, I've got 46 seconds, give me an extra minute or two. But in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus turns to his disciples, specifically Peter, and he says, hey, Peter, let me ask you this question. Who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're a prophet. Some people say, he said, no, Peter, who do you say I am? Actually, he says, hey, Simon Barjona, who do you say that I am? And Simon Barjona responds, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And then he says, it is not yourself that revealed it to you, but your heavenly Father who revealed this to you. From now on you are Peter, and Peter upon this rock I will build the church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. We all know that, right? But you see, Simon Bar-Jonah, I think that that's interesting because Simon means the one who listens, Bar means son of, and Jonah literally means dove. 
And so if you translate that, Simon Bar-Jonah is the one who listens to the dove. And we know that the dove in the New Testament is representative of the Holy Spirit. The one who listens to the Holy Spirit. Hey, um, this has just been revealed to you, the one who listens to the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what prayer and fasting does, is it gets our ear in tune with the heart of God, the one who listens to the Holy Spirit. But then he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now, let me ask you this. Where else in the scripture does, is, does it say anything about the gates of hell? It doesn't. It doesn't. And it is because Jesus was using a modern-day illustration right there, saying the gates of hell or the gates of Hades. See, in Jerusalem, there are all these gates that end up surrounding. And you know what takes place at all these gates in a time of war? Strategy. And so what he's saying is the one who listens to the Spirit— through him or through her, I will build my church and the strategies of hell shall not prevail. Church, I am here to tell you if we will humble ourselves, if we will fast, if we will pray, our God will be just and he will speak to us and there is nothing that will stop the church of Jesus Christ and the strategies of hell against your life, against your family, against Brooklyn, New York, and the United States of America will fall under the power and under the authority of Jesus Christ and that's exactly what he's inviting us to. And if there's anything else I can say, let's get our hearts ready for what God is about to do. I genuinely believe the awakening, the shakening is about to produce a harvest of souls for the kingdom of God. And he wants to use ordinary cupbearers to usher in this great revival and move of God. Are you going to join them? Are you going to join them? As I close out, pastor closing, it's like my third closing. As I close out, for real, this is all about having a relationship with God. And if you don't have a relationship with God, man, there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect. The only way we can have a relationship with our Heavenly Father is through our faith in Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do right here is I want to give you an opportunity. If you've never said yes to Jesus, or maybe you've said yes to Jesus and you've walked away, and now is your opportunity to repent, I want to give you that opportunity. I'd like us all just to close our eyes and bow our heads. And very simply, I just want you to repeat after me, if this is you, Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. And if that's you, I just want you to slip up your hand. I just want to pray for you right where you are. Thank you. Father, I just thank you for all the hands that have been lifted up today. Father, I thank you, God, that you will forgive us of our sins when we fall to a place of repentance. Jesus, I ask that you would do something in Res Church greater than you have ever done before, Father, that you would just breathe a new breath upon this church, Father. I thank you for Bishop Joe and Joyce Matera, God, the leadership of this church. And Lord, I just ask that you continue to use this church as a catalyst to advance your kingdom, to move your kingdom forward. Father, we pray for our land today. Heal our land. Heal our land in Jesus' name.